Welcome to Bulls Gold on Nothing But Net Radio, Paradash Radio. I'm Salim Sitarwala, and as always, I'm joined by Edward Shiloh Jr. How are you doing today, Edward? I'm doing well. I've had a really quiet chill last few weeks, but uh, everything has been everything with me. How's things going for you, Salim? Yeah, pretty well. Just excited. I've uh, been keeping active, but I'm excited about in about 10 days, we're going to have the uh, full first NBA game in quite some time. Mm-hmm. And as you know, as we're continuing our series of talking about teams who are in the Orlando bubble, uh, today we'll be going over the Miami Heat. And to help us review them, joining us today is Nikias Duncan, who is a contributor on Bleach Report and also uh, contributes to the Miami Heat Beat podcast. Hey, Nikias, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. How are you? Doing well, doing well. Uh, so yeah, let's just let's get into it. Obviously, the uh, start of the season, obviously not even the season, the off season was kind of surprising with the Miami Heat uh, out of nowhere, kind of becoming uh, or adding Jimmy Butler. I should say not becoming favorites, but they added Jimmy Butler and maneuvered around to trade him. And obviously, there's Jimmy with his. Uh, I'm a huge Jimmy Butler fan. I'm he's still probably my favorite player in the league. Um, obviously from his time with the Bulls, but obviously his from team to team that he's been on, he's had a, some sort of chaotic experiences. And going into Miami, people had a lot of doubts about him just because, again, with stuff that happened in Minnesota. And not to say Philly was chaotic, but uh, obviously him leaving there, being that they were essentially a contender, people had kind of question marks about that, why he was leaving. Uh, how do you think the whole so far the Jimmy Butler experience has gone in Miami? It seems like as far as from top to down organization fit wise, it's perfect. Um, it's definitely been a perfect fit off the court. Um, as you've mentioned, Jimmy has had a few uh, private and public spats in some prior spots, um, most notably his whole ordeal with Minnesota before he got traded to Philadelphia. That was a very loud uh Pretty funny to watch from afar. I'm sure yeah. uh, the Timberwolves yeah. fans probably weren't too fond of Jimmy Butler at that point. <laughs> but um, as he said, he said it in preseason. Um, he said it during the season. He continues to say it. Miami feels like the spot where he feels like he can finally be himself. And I think a lot of the flack that Jimmy Butler catches with, uh, with him kind of not just working hard, but also letting everyone know that he works hard. People kind of think that it's performative in a way. But um, it, it looks like that's really him, and Miami has embraced that. Um, when the story came out, when he was first a member of the Miami Heat, he was uh, calling for like 3 a.m., 4 a.m. workouts. Uh, Myers Leonard, a guy that was a part of a trade surrounding all of that, he was right there with him working out. Um, he's been a been big influence on Tyler Hero. Um, they've worked out together. Um, it seems like the young guys have, in particular have really taken to Jimmy's leadership um, he empowers them on the court as well. Um, Jimmy's averaging a career high in assist. He's kind of giving the reins to Bam out of bio a little bit. Who he, he was already going to get like a natural bump in usage anyway with Hassan Whiteside out of the picture. But Jimmy's really been in his ear to shoot more, to make more decisions, to be more aggressive because he sees how good Bam is and how good he can be. So he's really been good for the young guys in that perspective, just empowering them to be themselves and not be afraid of the moment. And of course, Jimmy Butler is really good himself. Like even though he's had a bit of a dip as a scorer this year, he's been a fantastic passer. The defense is back. The rebounding's been there. He's just been making um, impact plays on both ends of the court all year long. It's been a great fit on and off the court. 
Yeah, he's he's definitely one of those. Uh, I always call him eccentric, just because the way he is. I he, I agree with you. I think he's genuine. I don't think he's doing all these little things for theatrics. I think that's just who he is. That's how he pushes himself because he is athletic, but he's not as naturally talented as some of these best players in the leagues are. So he knows what he needs to do to maintain that level of being that you know that top fifteen player, if you will. Uh, one thing I've been curious about with his shooting this year, you mentioned his offense has been a little uh, sporadic as far as his scoring is concerned. It's really weird to see how far his shooting felt this season uh, when in past seasons, while he was never really known as like a sharpshooter by any means, but at least he had a respectable three-point shot. Uh, what what, do you, what would you think is like the reason that's just really fallen off? Have you seen some differences in him as far as the way he's shooting or what he's doing out there? Um, I think the primary issue with him is that he's been dealing with the wrist injury for most of the season. Okay, and I think that's evident in the drastic dip and not just three point shooting, but also mid range shooting. As you mentioned, he's never been like a sharp shooter, but he's always been a reliable mid range threat, either out of post ups or just pulling up out of pick and roll. And even that part of his game just hasn't been there. And he's been able to compensate by getting to the line a lot. Um, a free throw rate flirting with 70 is patently absurd, to be frank with you. But um, he's gotten to the line, gotten a lot of easy points to kind of compensate for the jumper not being there. And I think the biggest issue there is with his wrist. Um, I think the long layoff has probably helped in that regard. Um, some clips have come out with him in heat practice. And obviously, you have to take practice clips with a grain of salt. But it looks like the ball is coming out easier. Um, looks like if he's definitely knocking down more jumpers than we've seen for him this year. So if he can get back to an average level there, he doesn't have to be his teammate Duncan Robinson or anything like that. But if he's a respectable pull-up threat in the mid-range area, I think that's going to help, particularly in late-game situations. Yeah, definitely. So one of the knocks on Jimmy Butler, and I don't know how valid it, it could be valid. It could not be. But one of the knocks was that Jimmy Butler is not a player that you can build a championship team specifically around. And the Chicago Bulls kind of use that as a justification to not to not have a desire to pay Jimmy Butler the supermax that he would have been eligible for in Chicago. So they moved him. What do you think about Miami's long term? chances of being able to build a championship team around Jimmy Butler. I mean, obviously I know they're courting another max free agent in the future. And I mean, there's been rumors about Bradley Beal and Giannis and all these other players, but do you think that the uh, Miami heat can build a legitimate championship team around Butler? Um, I don't think they can do that. And I think, honestly, I think that's fine. I view the acquisition of Jimmy Butler, which honestly has been like a year and a half in the making. If you're going back to the negotiations Miami had with Minnesota before all that craziness went down. Um, I think the acquisition of Jimmy Butler was viewed as step one into getting back into serious contention. Because if you look back, if you go back to 2006, it was Dwayne Wade ascending and also trading for Shaquille O'Neal and then making a, like a 12-player trade to bring in a bunch of veteran role players for them to make that run in 06. Obviously, in 2010, that was LeBron James, Dwayne Wade coming back and then adding Chris Bosh to the fold. It was a big three. So I think Jimmy Butler is step one, getting a foundational star, um, and he's been that. Bam Adebayo's ascension has probably, has probably come a little bit earlier than expected. But he looks like a he looks like a second or maybe a third star, depending on who they can get in 2021, if they can get anyone. So I don't think the goal is to build around Jimmy Butler. It's 
to have Jimmy Butler as the supporting piece to the guy. Tyler Hero is a a very interesting uh, prospect as far as even coming into the draft, he probably should have gotten higher uh, than he did where he slotted that in and Miami ends up with essentially a steal. And it looks like him with his relationship with Jimmy has really helped him flourish. He's very confident. He's kind of cocky in the same sense as Jimmy is. And it seems like, you know, they connect with that, you know, as far as that trade is concerned. And, Seeing him and him flourish, do you think he's kind of like an untouchable for Miami or in the, in the right situation, you would definitely, even if it was like, let's say, uh, Washington asked for him in a Bradley Beal deal, do you, would you want to give him up for that? Or what's your like like limit on or how far you would go as far as not wanting to trade him? Um, I think the Heat view him as untouchable with obvious exceptions to like superstar talents. If Giannis were to force his way out, you know, heroes on the table or someone in that vein, I think Bradley Bill is probably the cutoff point to the type of star that Miami would be willing to trade Hero for. For me, I don't think Hero should be viewed as untouchable. I think he's a really good young piece. Uh, I think a strong argument could be made that behind Bam Adebayo, he's their second best young asset. But I do think uh, the physical limitations, particularly with his wingspan, I think that limits his upside defensively. And if you're not going to be a two-way talent, or at least not an upper-end two-way talent, I think you are still um, you're a piece that can be moved. And I don't think Miami will. He- that's why I don't think Miami will hesitate to trade him for like an upper-end guy. But I mean, Hero has been good. Has been pretty good this year. Um, he's dealt with injuries, but uh, the shot making has been there. He's shown some nice playmaking pat- flashes which should bode well if he gets more touches moving forward. And obviously that's going to be contingent on what the Heat do um, in the next couple of years in terms of adding talent. Because I do think um, in a grander scheme, they are probably a primary initiator short of being a serious contender. Jimmy's their best guy right now, but they do need someone with some um, some pull-up shooting equity. And that's not Jimmy. And as good as Bam is, that's not him yet either because he's not a shooter. So um, – if Hero becomes that, then obviously all bets are off on trading him, period. Mm. But if not, he probably will be the guy that's used to bring in that kind of guy. So one of the one of the interesting things about Miami is that it feels like they've always been able to find like diamonds in the rough consistently. And I, I know when the Chicago Bulls were looking at a new GM and a new uh, vice president of basketball operations, one of the people that I was really drawn to was Adam Simon of the Miami Heat because it felt like he played a key role running the uh, G League affiliate and being able to discover so many of these gems, whether through the G League or the draft. And you look at these players now like uh, Kendrick Nunn and Duncan Robinson, uh, even Chris Silva is someone who's been able to give them like pretty solid production and spot minutes here and there. Miami's just been able to find all of these players out of nowhere and throw them in a rotation on a playoff caliber basketball scene, which is uh, amazing. Like, tell me about how Miami is able to consistently do that with these players like Nunn and Robinson and Silva. I mean, I'm sure you can go back even further than that, but they just keep doing it. Yeah, uh, going back further, Hassan Whiteside is uh, probably your best example of that, just kind of finding a guy with physical talents. Um, that have been discarded for whatever reason. For a white side, it was mostly um, 
mostly mentality stuff, effort stuff. And I mean, that still kind of played him throughout his NBA career, but the talent is evident in Miami put him in a situation to, um, to thrive really on the court and off the court, surrounding him with strong veterans. Um, Dwayne Wade was there when he first, um, when he was first there, Chris Bosh was there before he had his health stuff. Udonis Haslam has been in the room forever. Um, they had Juwan Howard on staff until he got the Michigan job last year. So they, they do a great job of cultivating, um, of cultivating te- uh, veterans to help bring the young guys along. So even if it's not a traditional um, spot like, say, just a typical lottery team to where you get a young guy that's like, okay, here's the ball, go get it. You're, they're able to bring these young guys around more slowly, but they also, they're still getting the same amount of reps, really, just because of who they're around and who they're going against in practice and the kind of um, standard that Miami holds is in terms of being a hardworking organization. Um, they do have a strong scouting system, so that helps them find those diamonds in the rough, your Hassan Whitesides, your Tyler Johnsons. Um, more recently, your Duncan Robinson, he was a guy that was targeted, was a, D, was a D3 guy before he got into Michigan. But they, um, they saw a skill set that they liked in Robinson, and their plan was, hey, we're going to make this skill you're shooting. We're going to turn it from good to great and from great to all time. And that's kind of been the way that they've gone about it. And obviously they have a pretty strong strength and conditioning program there. Duncan Robinson has kind of transformed his body. Um, if you look at Hassan Whiteside from 2014 to what he is now, um, you see very, very obvious signs that he's grown his body as well. I would anticipate seeing a similar um, similar growth in a guy like Tyler Hero or even a Chris Silva as he continues to uh, learn the game of basketball. Really, he hasn't he just hasn't been playing basketball that long, which is a reason why he's kind of slipped through the cracks. But he has pretty good instincts um, as a screener, kind of roaming on, off the ball, things of that nature. So I think it's just high, um, kind of spotting skills and then doing what they can to kind of cultivate that, that in addition to having those veterans in the room that can kind of show these guys the ropes. And I think that's why you see so many success stories in Miami. So, so going into the the, the Orlando bubble, my, uh, Miami's probably one of the teams outside of Milwaukee. I would say in the East, they have probably as good a shot as any other team to at least get it to the Eastern Conference Finals. And because of this layoff, you never know something crazy happens where maybe they have a puncher's chance of upsetting the Bucks. Uh, what what would your expectations be? Would it be like if you as as someone like as a Heat fan or someone that covers the Heat, would you be pretty disappointed if they did not make it to the, at least the Eastern Conference Finals? Uh, I wouldn't call it a disappointment if they don't make it to the Eastern Conference Finals. I think the Eastern Conference Finals is probably your high end. But, I mean, the playoffs are always a, a series of matchups. It's going to depend on who they face up against. Um, if they stay in that 4-5 range, you're going to be looking at Milwaukee in the second round. And if you feel like Milwaukee's the favorite and they lose to Milwaukee in round two, it's going to be kind of hard to fight, uh, to view that as a disappointment. That's fair. Um, I, I think a strong sowing in the second round is my realistic expectation for them. Um, even if they slide into – if they slide to third or if things go poorly in this eight-game restart, they slide to six. If they're in that bracket, um, I would still give them a pretty good chance against a Toronto or a Boston. Um, and then once you get there, then you, you're looking at an easier path to the East Conference Finals. But – um. I think second round is probably where you want to be at, honestly. With uh, this in, with this news coming out with Indiana, um, we don't know how long DeMontis Savon is going to be out with his foot injury. Uh, we don't know if Victor Oladipo is playing. 
um, Malcolm Broughton is Zach, but he is a guy that tested positive for the virus. So we're not sure what kind of effect that's going to have on him moving forward. Um, Jeremy Lamb is out there. I mean, they're missing a lot of perimeter talent. So if Miami catches Indiana in the first round, I would expect them to win that. And then from there, as you mentioned, they think they do have a puncher's chance against Milwaukee just because of how well they match up with them, particularly defensively. Yeah, I, I think Miami definitely is a sleeper in this in this in this entire thing because I mean, as you've been mentioning, they one they're just coached really well too. They just have so much chemistry and they have a rotation that I think is just really deep overall. And one of the reasons for that it have been the additions of Andre Iguodala, uh, Jay Crowder. So that added even more depth to that. Can you talk a little bit about like what Andre Iguodala has brought to the Miami Heat team? I mean, he's been a finals MVP. He's locked down some big time players and he's just been a consistent veteran in this league for a long time. And now you have that experience coming off the bench. So like, what does he mean for a potential like dark horse run, if you will, in this bubble? Um, I think he's going to end up being one of Miami's X factors. But I think the major thing that Miami accomplished when they traded for Andre Godala and Jay Crowder and Solomon Hill, though I don't expect him to have a role, is that it gave them a little bit more flexibility on the defensive end. Uh, Miami has been switching their defense quite a bit throughout the year, just throwing a bunch of different looks because they haven't found one that's really stuck this year. Um, they're traditionally a drop defensive team, but um, they've had some issues at the point of attack. So they've thrown in more zone. I think they lead the NBA in zone possessions this year. Um since the trade deadline with Crowder and Iguodala on, on the team now, they've been switching a little bit more. So I think having a guy like Iguodala that has played in a bunch of different systems, just having that kind of general IQ, I think that helps. And that really helps now with such a long layoff. He already has experience. So it's not going to be much of a learning curve because he's been there and done that. Um, in terms of what he's brought on the court so far, I mean, just, I mean it's that know-how. Um, he's actually shot pretty well from three though that's obviously been kind of the, uh, the up-and-down skill throughout his career, just the three-point shooting. And Miami's going to need that come playoff time. The team's going to shrink the floor if he's on the court. So he's going to have to knock down big shots. But um, just having just the general IQ defensively, his ability to move the ball on the offensive end, and then how he has a corner shooter if it's there, I think he gives them the kind of, um, gives them the kind of two-way wing that they need. Yeah, Iguodala is interesting. I, I, is been such a long layoff that I totally forgot about that trade. I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. They traded for Iguodala. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I was like, that's right. That that adds a big factor for them uh, as far as what they can do in the pay- playoff as versatility is concerned, especially hand- having that extra ball handler. Yeah. Is there is there like a lineup right now that you look at after the Iguodala trade that is kind of in that? I mean, I, obviously there's never going to be a lineup. Well, there's not really a lineup right now that compares to what Golden State was able to trot out with Iguodala, Durant, Draymond, and all them guys. But, like, is there a lineup that Miami has now with Iguodala that is just so dangerous defensively in terms of being able to switch and still being productive offensively that can really throw teams off in the playoffs? Um, I think ideally that's going to be Bam at the five, probably Jay Crowder at the four. You had Iguodala out there. You have Jimmy Butler out there. And then it's kind of your fielder's choice there. Uh, they wanted to add Kendrick Nunn if he's knocking down pull-up shots. Uh, Duncan Robinson if he's hitting shots from anywhere, really. Um, Derrick Jones Jr. if he's hitting shots. So I think uh, just having that core four is what's going to allow them to switch. And then you're just picking a guy that can kind of hang defensively and knock down shots on the other end because they're going to need another spacer out there. 
So switching up a little bit, as Edward brought up earlier, and that one of the uh, in the off season when the Bulls were looking for the front office, they were also looking at Miami's front office, and then they did eventually uh, do an overhaul and added Arturis Karnaschovas, and eventually Arturis added Mark Eversley. Uh, in your in your opinion, how do you think the Bulls have gone about this off season so far, and? Uh, what are your thoughts on guys like on Arturis and on Mark Eversley that the Bulls have added? Um, I think it's kind of mixed. I do think a front office overhaul has been needed for a very, 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 very long time. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I think you're, you're, you're the, <laughs> it's a lot so of theories. Making those, step, taking those steps is encouraging. However, there is a pretty big elephant in the room right now, a head coach. Yeah, and I'm not sure how much that matters if if he's still going to be there because I I don't think I mean if you're just looking at it from a results perspective, Jim Boyle has been a failure. Yeah, definitely. and if you look at some of the outside attention that he's gotten for some of his post game pressers or even the pre game pressers and some of his answers on the court, the the timeouts when you're down 30 <laughs> with 10 seconds left or so stuff like that, like it it does the optics aren't great on top of the results not being great. And even he's a basketball lifer, so I don't think general IQ is an issue with him. But it's very obvious that some of the offensive ideals just haven't worked out. Um, For instance, I'm not sure why Wendell Carter Jr. just hasn't been liberated to do more on the offensive end. And you would think that he would be a guy that you kind of empower to say, hey, go make mistakes, but let's see what you can do, especially since Chicago's basically in stage one of the rebuild still. But – in front of the guys you brought in, they're all experienced. Um, Arturis from Denver, a strong player development background there. Um, they've had a lot of success scouting um, internationally. I think that's going to help. I think that really helps in this draft in particular, since there isn't a real home run number one um, option in the draft this year. So I think having someone with that kind of deep scouting background and someone that's come from an organization that helps with player development, that's going to help with a roster that's already pretty young. Mm-hmm. So – like you mentioned, I mean, we, we know Jim Boylan needs to be out, but one of the things that's always been interesting to me is how well Pat Riley has empowered Eric Spolstra through his tenure in Miami. And mm-hmm. you look at the start of the uh, Big Three era when there was a lot of criticism of Spolstra for how he was interacting with LeBron and like everyone thought that you know the players didn't respect him that well and he was just kind of a pushover but Pat Riley stuck with Eric Spolstra throughout all of that and obviously you know he was rewarded for it because he got two more uh, he got two more championships out of that so mm-hmm. we we know Pat Riley is a, a legendary coach legendary executive so like if we're comparing it to how the Bulls have operated with head coaches Mm-hmm. What is something that Arturis Karnishevis can really emulate with coaches going forward that's similar to how Pat Riley has empowered his head coaches? Because that's one of the narratives that this team is really facing right now is that they're trying to not be a franchise that's recognized with so much coaching turmoil and, and skepticism. But you look at Miami mm-hmm. and it's you could easily make the case that it's arguably the most coach friendly environment there is in the NBA. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it starts with everyone having the same vision. I think that's the big thing. 
Because when you get a team that is as young as Chicago, you're looking at Kobe White, you're looking at Laurie Markinen, um, looking at Zach Levine, who's still pretty young, and guys like that, you think re- you think rebuild or at least, you know, you're you're still trying to build up. But then you can't also have that young group and then throw a bunch of money at veterans. Like I don't, you don't draft Kobe White and then you sign Thomas Sadaransky, and then you have, I mean, you you can't have log jams. Like you bring into about uh, Thaddeus Young and guys like that and kind of block your young guys. So then the expectations heighten since you're getting veterans. So now you're just kind of caught in the middle. You're not accomplishing anything. So I think it's first having the vision, really, truthfully, uh, honestly assessing where you are as an organization, making sure everyone's on the same page in that regard, and then after that. You pick your guy, someone that fits those ideals. I'm not sure if Jim Boylan is that guy, especially for this group, since we already have a little bit of a sample of what he's done with his team and how he's managed the young guy specifically. I don't think he's the person for the job. But you find that coach that fits those ideals, and then you empower them from there. And I think that's why the Pat Riley, Eric Spolster thing has worked, because Eric Spolster grew up in the organization, basically. He was a video coordinator. He's worked his way up. He's been there. He's shown the work. He has similar ideals to Pat Riley. And then once Spoke got there, obviously Dwayne Wade was still there in his prime when he got the job. So you don't want to discount Dwayne Wade being a superstar. But Eric Spolster didn't miss the playoffs once he once he got the job for the first few years. And then the big three happened. So he already had a track record of positive results as well. So it was easier to stick by him when there's a little bit of turmoil in the first year of the big three era. Because he's already proven that he can coach and he can handle big personalities. He just had to work through it. So I think step number one is is solidifying what your vision is and then finding a guy that fits that vision. Yeah, some of the Bulls' recent struggles have been where we have diamonds in a rough and for whatever reason they let them go and then they flourish elsewhere. Like you talk about a guy like Sporostro who came up within Miami starting out as video coordinator, we had Nick Nurse in our uh, Windy City Bulls affiliate, and we let him go. <laughs> and obviously, we see what he became. Uh, we had a guy like Spencer Dinwiddie, too, for a little bit. And then we let him go, and we see what he became eventually. So, yeah, that struggle, the vision's there. And, and you bring up the fact that uh, with the with them drafting Kobe White and then bringing in Sadoransky, I think, again, it was a screw-up in vision because – they wanted to move Chris Dunn, so they assumed that they were going to move Chris Dunn, and they wanted to have another point guard so they wouldn't have to rush Kobe White along in any sort of way. And then again, yeah, that became a logjam because it was just you know, poor planning on their part. So yeah, you're you're definitely right on on all those aspects as far as having the vision and and making sure you're carrying that vision out. Yeah, absolutely. So. Looking at this roster right now, and we, we've talked about this on a few episodes. I mean, just looking up and down, we got Levine, Markin, and White, Carter. I mean, you mentioned that Wendell Carter is probably really, or not even probably, but he's definitely underused in terms of not just offensively, but I mean, just how he can impact the game. So it, you look at the young talent on this roster. Is there anyone who you think really doesn't fit what this team can do long term and is somebody that you would move I mean there's been talks that you know some fans think that maybe Lowry Markkinen could be moved some fans think that Zach Levine even though he's great there's questions of whether or not in the long run you're gonna pay him like when you look at the young talent on this team like 
who who do you think kind of fits what they can do going forward? Uh, it's tough because I'm just not sure what kind of team Chicago is trying to build. And that kind of goes back to the conversation we just had. We don't know what division is. Is this going to be a defense first team? Because if it is, I'm not sure if you want to have a Zach Levine, Laurie Markin and pairing late in games to where teams can just go pick and roll into death and there's not much you can do about it. If you're going to play an up-tempo style, uh, I'm not sure if Kobe White is the decision maker you want, though obviously you, he's very early in his career, so you have to see how he develops. But there's, I mean, I just don't know. Because then if you're trying to play fast, you're trying to play small, having a Carter marking in front of court kind of goes against that. You probably want to have one of those guys at the five so you can really spread it out. And if Laurie can't defend four, if Laurie can't defend fives, then that kind of puts him either in a high minute six man role or you try to cash him in for someone that fits. So I think they still need to figure out exactly what kind of team they want to be before they, um, before you can make those kind of decisions. But um, in a vacuum, um, I would just say in the similar vein, I think Laurie Markin and Zach Levine are kind of your guys that would be first to go if they decide to move any of the young pieces. Um, I think Wendell has a tremendous potential to be a really a, a two-way impact guy. Uh, I think Kobe White, especially what we saw for the last month and a half from him, shows he can be a dynamic shot creator. It's just kind of trying to hone in some of those um, those bad decision flashes. Um, Marketing has just kind of floated between both front court spots. He's dealt with injuries, which has really hindered him as a three-point shooter, and that's his top asset. Zach Levine has taken a growth as a passer, but he's still prone to tunnel vision at times, and he's never been a plus defensively. So you have to hope that Zach Levine becomes not just a really good shot creator. He has to become an elite guy to really make that work from a winning perspective. And I'm not sure if he has that ceiling. Do you think he's kind of like peaked in terms of maybe value right now? Like, do you think this is as good as Zach Levine gets? And like, you just kind of know what he is. Like, I, I think in the last few episodes, like we've talked about like players like like a Kevin Martin, like a Michael Red. Not that these are players who you wouldn't like to have on your team, but mm-hmm. when you're in a rebuild, you're always tasked with that dilemma of, okay, I know I have this good player, but we're so far away from winning. Do I give them another contract and pay market value for them? Because, I mean, Zach Levine right now is underpaid. You look at across the league, like players mm-hmm. like Devin Booker, Jamal Murray, like, do you – do you pay Zach Levine long term to make it to make him that guy, or is it just this is what he is? He's peaked. Like we gotta we gotta kind of like just take advantage of that. Yeah. Um, it feels like a bit of a cop out, but I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I don't necessarily think he's peaked because I think as you've seen this year, he has cut out some of those mid range jumpers and turned those into threes, and that's helped his efficiency a good bit. And he has improved as a decision maker, as a passer. But I also don't think he has great feel regardless. I think those improvements as a passer were basically like learn the reads, you know, make the corner skip if the big plays up and pick and roll, those kind of things. He doesn't anticipate well. And that's shown more so on the defensive end where he – it's not necessarily an effort issue with him as much. He just kind of doesn't know what's happening as it happens. And he's, it always feels like he's a step or two slow behind the action. So I don't think – I'm not sure how much better he gets because I don't think his feel is great. And if his feel isn't great, that really sets him, he would have to kind of be like a hired gun, I think, 
he would have to be like a overqualified third option or a fine second option to a like a Giannis type guy. And I don't think Chicago signing a Giannis or Giannis himself. And I'm not sure when you when Chicago's going to be in a position to draft um, an elite talent. If they commit to the tank now, maybe you're looking at like a Cade Cunningham in 2022 and try to get him. And he can he has potential to be that kind of superstar wing initiator. But at that point, I'm not sure I want to be paying Zach Levine $30 million a year. And by the time Cade Cunningham was ready to take that leap, you know, Levine is kind of what he is or he's slightly worse. Yeah, that's that's the uh, the conundrum most Bulls fans, and I think a lot of Bulls fans literally like Zach, and they feel like he's Zach's kind of also been put in a bad situation where he's not he's not supposed to be your number one by any means, and he's doing the best he can with what he has, and he's like you say he's a really good scorer. He's probably on the cusp of becoming a better passer and and affecting the game on multiple levels as opposed to just scoring. So, yeah, it's hard to say on that. And speaking of the draft, obviously the Bulls, it's going to be kind of important uh, with Arturis' first draft coming up. And obviously he's been doing his research. I'm, I'm kind of getting more familiar with this draft as well. Obviously it's not as past draft as far as being star-studded where on the top heavy you don't you don't see a guy like a, J- a John Moran or a Zion or a Luca or anything like that necessarily. Not to say that someone couldn't eventually down the line become a star uh, depending on how they develop. Uh, who, who do you think that you look at in this draft that could possibly be a good fit in Chicago? Uh, well, obviously it's going to depend on where they fall. But um, I would say in a vacuum – um, if they end up high enough in the draft, um, I think if Chicago kind of decides, hey, we might want to move on from Zach Levine at a certain point, I think a guy like Anthony Edwards will make a lot of sense for them because I think he probably has the highest scoring up- upside in the draft this year, um, among wings anyway. Um, but if they fall, you know, within like the 6 to 10 range or somewhere in there, um, I'd probably look at a guy like Tyrese Halliburton, um, a guy that can't really good team defender, um, really good spot-up shooter, really, really smart decision-maker, great passer. Um, not an initiator guy, but he's a guy that can kind of bridge the gap between a guy like Kobe White and Zach Levine to where they may have the tunnel vision but can create their own shots. Um, they can also um, bend defense in a way that Tyrese Halliburton can't, and he'll be able to um, finish plays as a shooter or kind of get, attack closeouts, get into the lane with his floater. So I, I think he would be the kind of he would be the kind of glue guy that would make the White-Levine backcourt work. It kind of like sad. Like in some ways, I kind of look at him like a Sadoransky, maybe a little bit more supercharged. But you look at a player that's like not very, not really a high volume scorer, but can play. Probably can play multiple positions, pass as well. Smart, like you mentioned, like pretty competent team defender, can hit that catch and shoot. So that's kind of what they wanted in Sadoransky, someone who could at least make that lineup work. So maybe he Mm -hmm. fulfills that role. So. Like along the lines of having that guard on the floor who can be a floor general, l- let's say the Bulls get the number one pick because, of course, they would after a pandemic, after all of this stuff, they would finally get the number one pick <laughs> after so many years. So you have your choice, anyone. You you mentioned Anthony Edwards as someone who could potentially replace Zach Levine down the road. Do you go Anthony Edwards at number one or? Are you considering LaMelo Ball, maybe Denny Avija? Where would you go? 
Uh, I would probably still lean Edwards because I think, at least compared to Lamelo, he showed a lot more um, upside defensively. I think that's more effort than like ineptitude defensively for Anthony Edwards. And they they're going to need a guy that can collapse defenses. I think Edwards can do that. Um, I am generally high on Lamelo Ball. I think he he's one of the best passing pro, pa, prospects I've ever seen. And uh, he's still trying to work out some kinks with his shot. But if he's a guy that can legitimately pull from 30 whenever, that's going to give him some value. Defenses have to pay attention to him, but that can open up the floor for everyone else. But I think Chicago has so many questions defensively, particularly if they're going to commit to Wendell and Laurie Markin in the front court. I don't think you can afford to have LaMelo on the court, Levine on the court, and Markin on the court at the same time <laughs> because you're just not going to be able to, to get stops. No. It's just not good. It's not really going to matter what they do on the offensive end at that point. So I would probably shield away from the mellow. I think I would still lean Anthony Edwards. Something I've been thinking a lot about this draft. I'd love to get your thoughts on, um, especially with in, in particular with these players that have gone to the NBL and played overseas. I'm wondering if we kind of don't have a good, as good a feel on them because going into a, a professional league, essentially playing as grown men, it's a big adjustment period for them. So maybe they weren't playing as well as they would have if they went to like the NCAA, for example. Uh, do you think that could possibly have an effect? And maybe once we get a better field going forward, if other players go down the future, uh, decide to go down there, we'll have a better idea. And maybe some of these guys are, like I said, better than we think they are. Yeah, I think so. I think, uh, that's where having a really strong scouting report, scouting department comes into play, being able to identify what skills are translatable, um, which ones are being hindered by playing against grown guys. In the case of LaMelo, his three-point shooting looked awful, but it was also a case of him not really able be, being able to penetrate the lane like he normally would against like people his age, just because these are grown men. And the stuff that he could get away with in high school, he just can't get away with grown men that have been playing professionally for a long time. So I think that's where highlighting, okay, he still has tremendous feel. And as he came on later in his stint there, he did start to threaten the needle on more of those high-level passes and things of that nature. And then trying to take that and see how that translates to the NBA. Um, I do think in a vacuum, having that um, experience against professionals is going to help him. I think it's going to slow the learning curve a little bit since he's already had experience doing it. Um, and it also would not surprise me to see more players go that route or you see in the, um, the select team with the, in the G League. That's starting to get more um, publicity. A lot of high-level prospects are starting to do that now. Um, it really just kind of shows how much of a farce the NCAA is, but I feel like that's a yeah. whole other podcast. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, yeah, it definitely. wouldn't surprise me to see more players go that route. Hey, we got time. I mean, we can get into it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just going to be a bunch of yeah, I'll have to get <laughs> What do you think about, because I'm all for, like, just abandoning the one-and-done rule and just having players being able to jump straight from high school to an NBA roster, but I've always felt that one of the concerns is that you get players, I mean, I guess it's self-explanatory. You're going from being a high school senior to being on the road with grown men traveling like from city mm -hmm. to city practicing and it is a hell of a transition and a lot mm -hmm. of players just are not ready for that mentally nor physically so mm -hmm. i mean i'm sure you can we can name plenty of examples that this happened to during that high school era and then on top of that there's been some criticism about how well like the aau circuit 
like prepares players to really be able to play in the NBA because I mean you watch these like highlights these I mean there's not really much structure they're going down they're doing whatever they want LaMelo Ball in his highlights he's just going down chuck a jumper go back like are you concerned that a lot of these players in today's high school basketball era when that rule does is eventually taken away are we going to look at players struggling more or do you think it's just kind of like a non-issue in the transition um, I think in general, it's going to be a non-issue because I think with anything, I mean, it's going to, again, it's going to come down to scouting and part of doing that homework is seeing what kind of structure they came from and what kind of work ethic they displayed in that structure or lack thereof. So, I mean, just take this, uh, making a really simple example. Uh, if you go back to LeBron in 2003, like, I don't, I don't think, any team is missing out on that kind of guy that already has the body, already has the field and things of that nature. When it comes to um, lesser prospects, um, I would still just anticipate those guys dropping. So they won't have that kind of pressure to kind of carry the load. And if they're a smart team, they're already going to have um, veterans on the team to kind of help them along in that process um, off the court specifically. I mean, that's going to be just as much as it's a big change on the court, it's a probably an even bigger change off the court, just the lifestyle, getting that kind of money um, and the extracurriculars that come with that. So I don't anticipate it being a huge issue. I think the biggest thing in this conversation is that the players deserve to have a choice. And I think that choice wouldn't be as necessary if they were, I mean, it really comes down, it boils down to money more than anything that I feel. So I feel like if players could, make money off of their own likeness in college there wouldn't be as big of a push to jump straight from high school to the nba because i mean i would imagine most of the players they feel like they're ready but they also feel like they have to be ready because they their families adjacent parties they need to eat and he they kind of serve as that meal ticket there so i think removing that external pressure and allowing them to make money while in college, I don't think you would have as many guys jump into the NBA when they know they aren't ready. Yeah. I, I always think back yeah. to uh, the Fab Five documentary ESPN did, and Chris Weber talks about his decision to jump to the NBA and how he pulled up to a bookstore in Michigan and he saw his jersey being sold in the window for like 75 bucks. And, of course, mm-hmm. it doesn't have his last name on the back, but he's just like – I'm not getting a dime of that money. So <laughs> right. like, and I'm, I'm driving around in this like hoopty and like my mom is like struggling. Why, like, why would I come, like, why would I come back? Like, I got to go get this money. Yeah. And like, obviously going to the, it isn't the, uh, the average career isn't like as dire as it is in the NFL to where it's a legitimate health thing. It's like your average player is like a year and a half to three years and you're out of there. Like there's more guaranteed money involved in basketball. Um, just by the nature of the rookie contracts, you already have that money locked in. And we've seen throughout the years, if you're a lottery pick, unless you have like legit legal issues or a career ending injury, you're going to get chances just by virtue of you being a lottery pick. So yeah. like the money is just kind of always going to be there. So I think, again, removing those external pressures and allowing guys to make money off of themselves would kind of alleviate some of that concern. I think the other thing that'll make it easier on the NBA too is letting every NBA team have their own minor league affiliate because that way you can send a guy down, have them be in the that same system and everything. Because right now I know 
teams use the Bulls affiliate. Like I think Denver, for example, uses the Bulls affiliate. They had uh, a Bull Bull on the Bulls uh, for for a little bit. So you would think that, I mean, granted, Denver's doing pretty well on their own, but it would be more helpful for a team to have their own affiliate, their own system that, that they can monitor and, and send guys down that who aren't, you know, NBA ready right away. They're still figuring things out. So they're not kind of wasting uh, roster spots on uh, having a roster spot open for a guy that might not be ready yet to play. So, and, but then that player can still have obviously signed a shoe deal with Nike, Adidas, or whatever, and still get paid for his likeness and stuff like that. And I think that's coming because I think well, there are how many teams in the NBA that doesn't have a G League affiliate now? Two, three? Like it's a yeah, handful. Uh, I think it is dwindling down for, for the most part, yeah. Yeah, so I think we're we're rapidly approaching that point. I think the pandemic is probably going to hinder that a little bit. But I think three, four years down the road, I think everyone's going to have their own team. So I, I think that's going to eliminate it. Um, like again, the addition of the, like the G League Select team, I think we have uh, we're going to have more young guys in more structure earlier. That's going to allow them to make money and uh, kind of prepare them for the league. So I don't think the learning curve is going to be as stark as it looks like. What do you think? We, we mentioned the bubble earlier. Today, uh, Sham Sharania tweeted out that there were 346 uh, tests for coronavirus among the players in the bubble. Nobody tested positive. I mean, that's extremely like great news. Mm-hmm. What do you think about the way the NBA has handled this, uh, everything going into the bubble? I mean, there it seems like it's going really well. Obviously, games start soon, so I mean... Things can be changed. Everything is fluid. But it seems like they're taking all the proper uh, steps to make sure that this is handled as efficiently as possible. What, what have you been your thoughts so far on on the bubble? I think from a health perspective, they have done as much as they possibly could to ensure that this is going to be as safe as it can be. Um, I think making players basically have to test negative four times before they can even get into the bubble is, I mean, they, they, they've crossed their T's and dotted their I's in that regard. Um, they made sure that the restaurants that are affiliated with the, the bubble, making sure all of their employees are getting tested and things of that nature, they're doing the best that they can to keep everyone safe. So I think they do deserve a little bit of applause there. Beyond that is where I have the issue. Because even if you're looking at how often players are getting tested, it kind of gets into a morality thing when players are getting tested daily and they're getting their results, you know, a few hours later while while people in surrounding areas are having to wait seven days, 10 days, 14 days to get results back. So I do think that's probably going to come to a head soon, especially as like hospitals continue to get filled. Um, that's a thing. And the other big issue I personally have is with how they've handled the social justice portion of it. Because um, yeah. I, I've been pretty vocal on Twitter about not wanting the NBA to restart. I've always understood that it was going to happen because of how much money is at play. But I just didn't feel comfortable with them doing that, A, in the middle of a pandemic, and B, in the middle of all the protesting going on nationwide. And the biggest argument that I heard in favor of the NBA doing it is that, hey, a lot of eyes are going to be on these guys in Orlando. They're going to have this big platform um, to spread messages to help, you know, bring awareness to these causes. And the first thing we hear is that players are going to get to put names and stuff on the back of their jerseys, but it's basically prepackaged and they have to select from a list of, 
of terms and names to put on the back of the jersey. And I'm just like, if the platform is that wide, why don't the players have more say in what they want to do? I yeah. feel like if you're going if you're going to have this platform, you need to let the players run with it. Like this is a majority black lead. Um, in terms of the pro the protesting in general, like this is a black issue. You need to let your black players use this platform to do what they need to do to bring awareness and to ultimately eradicate the issues that they're protesting about. And it feels like the NBA has done the bare minimum, and in some cases less than. So I've had a big issue with that. Um, I saw earlier today that they are partnering with more um, local and minority-owned restaurants for uh, with the delivery services and things of that nature. I think that's a nice step. I feel like that's one of the things that probably should have been in play to begin with. Um, so I think catering to, well, maybe not catering to, but really lending a voice to uh, their black players, black executives, just the black voices in general in the league. It's been kind of underwhelming. That's disappointing me. Yeah. No, I, yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. It, it's, it seems like they've been limiting, like, like you said, they, they, they're limiting what they can put out there. And it's almost like they're only giving them basically a social activism starter kit for the things that they can put <laughs> right. on jerseys. And like, I, uh, I forget the player, but he was mentioning that if he had the uh, if he had the option, he was going to put the name of a woman who was murdered by uh, I think I forget how she was murdered, but uh, an African American woman that was murdered, and he was going to put her name on the back of a jersey. And I wish I remembered the player, but the fact that they can't do things like this now is really disappointing because it's not the full expression of their message. It's not the full expression of the cause and the movement. So it's just, it, 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 I agree with you. It does feel like the NBA just dropped the ball in that circumstance. And it, like, even though I, I think they've done a good job handling the uh, actual coronavirus part of all of this, as you mentioned, like everything else has just kind of been lukewarm and it just feels like they could have done a lot more considering how predominantly and historically black the NBA is and how big of an impact these things could have on not only our players and the community, but just also the children that are going to be looking up to them and things like that, you know? Right. And I think collectively what this has highlighted is that we have given the NBA too much of a pass because I think, I think we collectively have graded them on a curve in terms of the league being progressive. Yeah, exactly. Because the NBA, the NFL is so far behind. The MLB is so far behind. The NHL is so far behind. The WNBA has been fantastic, but we just collectively do not give them the attention and the praise mm-hmm. they deserve. So once you're looking at just the other, the three major leagues, MLB, NFL, whatever, the NBA has looked so far, so far, far ahead of them that we just kind of given them the progressive tag, period. When they're really just progressive adjacent. Yeah, it's kind of window dressing. It's what it is. It's same thing like some of these, you know, black people ask for equality and you see these brands. Oh, well, we're going to change the logo of this. It's like, well, okay, but that's not really asking. That's not really progress. That's just window dressing. So, yeah, I agree with you. It's just like the NBA, 100 percent, you know, they they push themselves as the progressive league, but they have limits on how far they'll go. And that is a problem. Yeah, it's really disappointing. And hopefully we see more. I mean, there's going to be plenty of time for them to write all of these things. And 
Yeah, I, I hope to see more of this. I, I think it's ridiculous that they will not let them put different things on the jersey. And I, I to me, I, I understand not putting the things like F12 or whatever like that, but at least like let them submit the ideas and then just go from there. Yeah, definitely. It's it'll be interesting what see what happens. Um, as we wrap up here, uh, Nikas, any final thoughts uh, that you may have? And also, please let our uh, listeners know where they can follow you and what other work that you have out there right now that they can uh, they can follow as well. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Nikias NBA N E K I A S NBA. Very original name. <laughs> um, I just had a piece drop at Bleach Report today, actually looking into. Um, who's performed the best on the road or away from home over the past four postseasons. Since we're all we're going to be in a neutral site, there's no home court advantage. So it's just a kind of a piece to shine some light into guys that have thrived away from home. Um, LeBron James was number one, um, which probably obvious if you've watched him in the playoffs over the last few years. But um, a lot of interesting names on the list, so that's out there. You can check that on my timeline. Um, as far as general thoughts, please free Wendell Carter Jr. He is incredibly yes. good. Really good rim protector, good passer. Let the man shoot. If it isn't great at the beginning, fine, but let him get those reps in so he can be the kind of talent that he has the potential to be. Yeah, Wendell's Wendell's uh that's definitely one of the things where it gets frustrating where he's it kind of became lost last year where I know we all wanted him to shoot and I know the coaching staff was holding him back, but eventually I think it also became a point where Wendell was becoming uh, losing his confidence and hesitating on when to shoot and when not to shoot. And I think we saw a little bit of that going away as the season went on, and we saw that jump shot, the mid-range, the free-throw line jump shot, like where you see guys like uh, uh, Marcus Gasols and the, uh, uh, Joe Kitches take those shots, not to compare him to those guys necessarily, but that's what you want to see to kind of space out the floor. So, yeah, we're, we're hoping hope, – we're really hoping that – you know, mm-hmm. whatever happens going forward, he is one of those guys that really they look into expanding his game, and especially with his passing as well. They don't utilize that. He's for a big. He has a really good vision. Some of the, some of these passes that he makes are just like, wow, how did he see that? He saw the guy. He grabs the rebound and sees the guy cutting their basket out of nowhere, or sees a guy a guard being open across the the court, and it's like, man, that's fantastic. Let's let's use this more. So yeah, we'll 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 see what happens with that. Uh, Edward, any any final thoughts as we're wrapping up here? Yeah, just echoing uh, what Nakash said. Uh, I'm tired of seeing Wendell Carter Jr. get the green light of a Bismack Biombo or someone like that. <laughs> like I would just like to see them let the guy make mis- make mistakes. The Bulls already lose games. What do you have to lose? Just let them make mistakes. Let them brick some shots. Mm. Yes, yes. We'll see. We'll see how that all wraps in. Um, anyway, that's a wrap for today's show. Please give us a follow on Twitter at Bulls Gold, and you can also find us on Instagram under the same name. If you've missed any previous shows, you can find us on all major podcast providers like Apple, Spotify, Google Play. And, of course, continue to tune in at 8 a.m. Uh, Central Time every Tuesday morning on Nothing But Net Radio on Dash Radio. Thank you again to Nakias Duncan for joining us today. And as always, for Edward Schuler and myself, thank you to all the listeners. Until next time, Bulls fans. Bye.